Hello and welcome to another edition of the Exit Pursued by Bard uh, Canterbury Shakespeare Festival's podcast. I'm joined today by Philip Hunt. Phil was on the founding committee of the festival back in the early days, which is like nearly a decade ago now. It's kind of terrifying. <laughs> uh, he directed Romeo and Juliet in the first year, and then he went on to play Bassanio in Merchant of Venice, Malvolio in Twelfth Night. He was in Iago, uh, and he was in Abaris in Antony and Cleopatra. And also Claudio in, in a Much Ado About Nothing, if I remember rightly, the, the hour-long version. Uh, in 2018, he was the producer for Shakespeare's Margaret Thatcher, which was done by one of our earlier podcastees when they took it to the Drayton Arms Theatre in London. After graduating from Kent, he went to Worcester College, Oxford, to get a Master's in English Literature, 1550-1700, where he specialised in queer non-canonical non drama. Try saying that five times fast. His master's dissertation was on reading early modern trans drama, and it's that kind of whole area that we're going to look into today. So the LGDP community, uh, the idea of gay and queer and, and lesbian didn't just, wasn't invented by Oscar Wilde in the late 1800s. Um, let's talk about it in, in sort of early modern England, in Shakespeare's. Yeah, language. yeah. So um, no, it wasn't invented by Oscar Wilde, um, but it's what's in the, the sort of the most important thing um, about early modern um, sexuality was that it is very different from how we imagine it now. Um, and the idea of gay and lesbian and transgender, um, as we think of them now, are not um, are, are completely not not the same in early modern London. Um, you know, gay, specifically homosexual, um, was actually is um, is from around Oscar time, from from um, the late nineteenth century. Um, was is a, a medical uh, psychiatric um, term originally called deviance um, of men who had sex with men. Um, and as uh, there's a lot of work that has shown that. Um, it's sort of that point and onwards that we sort of divide sexuality um, into this sort of uh, into these these categories into homosexual, heterosexual because you can't have homosexual without heterosexual. Mm. Um, it, the, the word heterosexual actually uh, comes into the English language after homosexual um, as in in opposition to it um, because you now needed some a word to describe um, somebody who was not homosexual. Um, and so if that comes in, in the 19th century and, and it's, it's follows through, through to now, we, we see the development of how um, sexuality and um, the uh, traditional nuclear family in, um, in modern Western society has, has developed into what we have now. Um, and there is of course much larger, um, wider acceptance um, of, uh, people who, who belong to the LGBT plus community. Um, and as that has, has developed, particularly in, you know, in the last 20 to 30 years, um, there's been a lot of study on that in, the, um, in Shakespeare's time. Um, and we can see that difference really, really, really easily. I, I've got a book on my shelf from 1953 um, in which the, it's, it's all about Shakespeare's boarding. So all of the rude sex jokes in Shakespeare. Oh, um, there are a lot. Oh, oh, yeah, like the whole thing is filthy. Um, and 
under the under homosexual in there. It basically said, "How dare you suggest that Shakespeare is homosexual or anything to do with homosexuality? That's disgusting." Um, he had nothing to do with these things. Um, to which we've now uh, evolved to a slightly different opinion um, that there is um, an awful lot of queerness in um, the early modern period and in, in the drama of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. Um, and by queerness, I mean, um, it's, it's both an academic term and a, and a community, community term, and it's sort of an umbrella term in which it's not terribly useful. Where it is useful is to, um, is in uh, binding together um, communities mm. so that they can fight for political power. You know, the, the trans community and the gay community and the lesbian community and bisexual community, all these different, uh, by uniting under one umbrella, uh, we can all fight for each other's rights as well as our own. Whereas if you've got these individual um, labels um, and groups, th th there's less power, right? So that's sort of where it's where it's developed in and in uh, in tandem in in, in uh, activism circles and then in in academic circles. Um, we need queer quite a lot because it's it is it is commonly used, and it it, it sort of covers a lot of what I'm going to talk about today. So that's sort of the background as to where we're going to go into here. Uh, which I think is important to know um, because was there a gay Shakespeare? Was Shakespeare gay? Were his characters gay? Were they trans? Were they lesbians? No, is the simple answer. And yes, is also the simple answer. But um, really they are, they are reflections. Um, we, we're, we're reflecting now. Um, what we find in them. There are people in the early modern period who have um, des uh, desire for the same sex, people who have, uh, whose, whose gender is, or is, not, um, is not as, uh, as binary as, as male or female. Um, and I'm going to talk, actually, sort of talk about that over the next however long we've got. Um, so, where to begin? Should we start Let's... with kind of sexuality in uh, in the early more in his time? So, yeah, Shakespeare out of the equation and kind of focus. Yes, on yes, yes. Let's do that. So, um, with the invention of of homosexuality in the in the nineteenth century, um, that very much pathologized. You know, it made it made the homosexual a category of being. You are either a homosexual or you are not, in the same way you're either a bisexual or a heterosexual law. Um, and that became a identity. Um, you know, and so that, that, that says, in, in society, it says something about you. You are a homosexual. You are, um, that, that becomes part of your identity. In the early modern period, um, in Shakespeare's period, that, that idea that you are, your, your sexuality is, is, is sort of an integral part of your, um, your, your persona and, your, and your, your makeup as a person is just not, it's not how people think then. Um, homosexuality is not really the right term to use at all. Um, 
we can think we can call homosexual behavior homosexual acts we can use um, because there are men having sex with men a lot of them um, there are women having sex with women um, there are men and women having sex with both men and women um, but there is no early modern gay identity mm. in fact it was thought that um, that any any person any man could have uh, could, could fall into uh, um, being attracted to men. It was something that was thought, you know, in the same way that um, that people thought, uh, you know, anyone could be a murderer or anybody could be. Um, could, you know, it was a sin. You shouldn't do it, but anybody could fall prey to it. There is no just because you you are sleeping with women doesn't mean that you are not capable of, of, of these things um, and that's found in, in the legal and in, in the in the literary and medical um, texts that we have um, from then um, and so what, what I'm essentially saying is, is it's um, and not denying that, that people in the early modern period experienced erotic desire for people of the same sex um, but I am saying that um, these uh, desires were not thought to be any different from other desires. You know, if you, you're attracted to men, yeah, that's, you know, you're attracted to women, people, that's, that's, um, there's no problem accepting that these um, desires exist. You just shouldn't act on them um, according to the, the moral and the legal and religious frameworks. Uh, people did, of course, yeah. um, a lot, um, and part of that is because um, anything outside of pro procreative sex within marriage is 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 wrong. Anything, you know, um, and that includes with, with women. Um, you know, uh, there's a huge, huge problem in the early modern period with um, young women. Uh, losing their chastity you know, once as soon as you stop being a virgin your um your your uh, worth in society is as long as you, if you're not married is destroyed um which is a big part of much ado is huge part of a lot of Shakespeare plays huge part of much ado um huge part of um the change of the shrew mm. um the, of, of Romeo and Juliet that's why they have to get married for the sex yeah um and that means that um, yeah, anything other than this procreative sex is 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 bad. Obviously, people are still doing all these things, um, and the sin of sodomy um, is, is is the classic um, in in the early modern period and 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 well beyond that. Um, and there's been a lot of work to show that, that basically nobody was ever charged with sodomy. Well, very, very few. Um, you know, between 1558 and 1625, there were actually six people <laughs> indicted for sodomy and only one of them was convicted. Um, and he, and he uh, generally death. Oh. Um, yeah, literally only one person was convicted of it and he'd raped a five-year-old boy. Um, so There were other things in play, though. Yeah. Um, the sodomy also, I mean, the, the, the law, um, one, there's a, there's a, a very 
prominent important lawyer in the Aliman period who wrote um, a lot of the, the, the legal framework that we, that we know of from then. Um, and he literally, uh, he, he calls it, uh, buggery is a detestable and abominable sin amongst Christians not to be named, committed by carnal knowledge against the ordinance of the creation and order of nature by mankind with mankind or with brute beast or by womankind with brute beast. Um, so sodomy didn't just mean um, anal sex between men. It meant uh, a, a, a vast swathe of um, sexual acts uh, with women, with, with, with men, with, with animals. Bestiality was considered sodomy. Um, and it also was very specifically required uh, penetration. Um, it, you know, it wasn't mere more sexual contact um, or ejaculation. Um, the, the, the specific Latin is um, emiso feminis, uh, which means ejaculation onto the thighs. Uh, that is not, and that's emiso feminis maketh it not buggery, but is evidence in the case of buggery of, pen, of penetration. Um, so the, these laws around sodomy are, are sort of very, very specific, um, but also very, very broad at the same time. Um, and for that reason, nobody ever gets. Um, you know, as, as the legal records we have, um, say only six um, indictments. That's not to say that lots of people didn't die um, being uh, you know, accused of being a sodomite. Um, but um, it's not sort of as sort of cast iron as we might think it was in the early modern period. Oh, yeah, sodomy bad. Yeah, sodomy is bad if you're an early modern person. But it's mostly only used as a political tool. If sodomy was brought in, uh, uh, the sodomy laws strengthened and brought in by Henry VIII uh, to use against the church, um, against the Catholic church and the monasteries, the, the monks were accused of, of doing a lot of this. Um, so it became a political tool, um, largely. Um, and so unless you had famous, powerful en enemies, um, you're only really likely to be indicted for sodomy by forcing um, another male, usually a minor, um, to be the receptive partner in anal sex. Um, and on, on the sort of the, the larger, maybe more crucial matter of, of mutual desire between men as equals, um, the law is basically doesn't pay anything. Um, that's not to say that the churches and moralists and um, people in the street don't have something to say about but the law is um, and it is silent basically and that doesn't indicate tolerance um, but it is deliberately not um, not seeing a lot of this same-sex contact because there's there are multiple ways that um, homoerotic desire is being um, transmitted through the early modern period. Um, and it's largely uh, doing it through institutions. Um, it's and mediated through sort of social relationships that don't take their form from homosexuality. And by that I mean Relationship, you know, this is my boyfriend, this is my husband. That's they're 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 happening in all sorts of, of relationships. Um, and that's 
Um, there's, 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 there's sort of, yeah, there is, there's groups of, of, of men. Um, there's various institutions that are, are very male dominated. We've got schooling and education, the household, um, sort of public political life, and the theatres. The theatres, of course, being, being, um, being very well known at the time, having a reputation for, um, for, for homosexual acts, people thought that they had, they had a reputation that, um, you know, in, in Poetaster, which is a, a Johnson play, um, when one of the, a young man says, I want to go be an actor, his father says, what, shall I have my son a stager for now? Uh, and Ingle for players, Ingle being homosexual prostitute. Um, there's lots of moralists at the time who are writing these things saying, the theatre is terrible, the theatre is bad, um, all of these men ha having sex with each other, um, and that's very bad. Um, it's an attitude that kind of still pervades today, in, you know, theatre is still seen quite heavily by certain people as, you know, the, the realm of, of the LGBT community. Um, absolutely, and that, um, and that, that, that derives a lot from um, the 1930s, 1940s, um, generally, um, and 1950s, that it's, it's an area um, in which people can sort of be freer um, amongst each other. Um, really interesting topic to talk about, but um, I'll sort of circle back to, to Shakespeare today, uh, since that, that's what we're talking about today. Um, where was I? Um, yeah, so there are these, um, anyone can be, can, can fall prey to homoerotic desire to want to have sex with men, is, is the thought. And there are these institutions um, which are very, which are completely male dominated. Um, and um, the, the, then we get, the, then we come because the actual desire, which is um, spread across broadly across two um, two sort of formulations. One is based in hierarchy and one is based in equality or equity. Um, the first is based in hierarchy is, is how a lot of um, almost early modern desire is 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 visible. And the most the, the sort of the most obvious one to most people is um, man and woman, husband and wife. In the early modern period, the husband is completely above the woman. Um, there, you know, it's God, man, woman, um, in terms of who is who, who is um, where in the hierarchy. Um, and but there's they. Um, this is sort of I think fairly fairly well known. It, you know, it comes up a lot in Shakespeare. Is that when a woman marries, um, she, she 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 all of her belongings, possessions, everything is now owned by a man. A woman cannot own land or property unless she is a widow. Another very interesting but um, di digression. Um, a woman belongs to her father until she belongs to her, hus her husband, um, and there's. Huge, lots and lots of work out there around that. It's really, really interesting, um, but it's, it's not sort of what I want to talk about today. Uh, it's just an example of where hierarchy is, is very clearly set. 
yeah. within homoerotic um, relationships, um, hierarchy is um, very, very important. And that's, uh, that's looking back at the ancient Greeks. The, um, the early moderns were absolutely in love with the classical period. They, yeah, and, and we see that through lots of Shakespeare. You know, there's all sorts of, Shakespeare and a lot of the other playwrights of the era were, were taught um, at grammar schools, um, which, which gave them this huge classical education. They all, for the large parts, um, were fluent in Latin. Um, and they read these, these texts in the original Latin. Um, and they, they, a lot of their legal framework and moral framework and um, social framework is, is, is a reflection of the, uh, of the ancient Greeks. Um, and that includes the ancient, the ancient Greek um, pederasty, um, which is where an older man, in the sort of um, classical philosophy model, is where an older man um, takes a younger man uh, under his wing, both pedagogically in um, teaching, um, but is also having sex with him. Um, and that is how a lot of sex in the early modern period is, um, is, 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 is happening. Um, you have a, a socially superior partner and a socially subordinate partner. Um, in the in heterosexual acts, that's the man and the woman. Um, and then in when we're talking about homosexual sex, homosexual acts, um, we're generally talking about an older man in a position of power and a younger man um, who is who is his subordinate. So uh, in a household, that's usually going to be the master of the household, um, but it could be the master's son because um, it, it does work across um, you know, class lines. And then usually a servant um, or perhaps a student. Um, the way the, the makeup of the early modern household is, is quite different. It's not the nuclear household that we think of now. Um, you know, in a household, um, both, you know, all, all through the class, classes really, it, there is, um, there are lots of people living in a household. Mm that aren't just blood related. You know, you've got servants, um, you've got students, you've got wards, um, lodgers, and it's not, the, the bedrooms are not private spaces um, as they are now. Um, you know, the perfect example is when women gave birth, everybody went to their bedroom and their bedroom became this very public arena to have, to have, have a baby. Um, but bedrooms generally were shared. There are very few people are sleeping on their own in the bedroom. Um, so you're usually sharing with somebody else, and that gives you a lot of access to their body, if you so desire it. Um, but also, these houses often don't, especially as you as you as you move down the class class system. Um, houses only have a, a small number of rooms. You know, they don't have multiple rooms to to, to house everybody. Um, and so you just have you have this household environment in which there is there are people who are not related to each other living in there, um, and they have very easy access to each other's bodies because they're sleeping in the same bed. Um, and there, there's a lot of 
um, you, know, you need to particularly read we think of it um, in ER, uh, in Othello um, when Iago, Iago and Cassio, or is it Othello and Cassio, um, they talk about being bedfellows. And that is literally because they are sleeping in the same bed. Um, and so what that means in, in the household is that there is this, um, there, there's opportunity. And that's, that's, that's sort of a key part of um, what we're thinking about homosexual sex in general, because we just don't know a lot of it because it just didn't happen. If it wasn't recorded, we don't know about it. Um, and because so few cases were brought legally, and that's where we get a lot of um, our information, it's, um, it's very hard to know who's having sex, exactly when they're having sex. And so we have to derive it a lot from imaginative literature like Shakespeare plays, um, like the poetry, like um, songs people are writing. And there's been, there's, there's been mountains and mountains of work done about over the last sort of 30 years. Um, but, but yes, uh, in the household, you've got people like masters and servants as a key one. Um, your master uh, has a bedroom which he's sharing with his servant because his servant um, needs to be around to attend his every need. Um, you've got that hierarchy there. They, that is easy opportunity for sex to happen. Um, and that sex you know, could be, you know, the sex doesn't just mean penetrative. Um, anal sex and homosexuality or penetrative um, penis and vagina sex in, in heterosexuality. Um, but that's that's where the definitions are, right, in, in early modern law. So the, the, the early modern law didn't care about mutual masturbation between um, between two men. There's a lot of grey area. For you. Yeah, huge amounts of grey area. And that's why we sort of don't know a lot of, you know, it's very hard to identify. So it's sort of like this person was having having this set because they were just doing it and they weren't writing it. No one uh, kept detailed sex diaries. Um, well, Simon Foreman did, but he's about the only one. Uh, he was mostly having sex with women. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he slept with several ladies, uh, Elizabeth was the first ladies maid, I think, if I remember rightly. It's been a while since I've um, read about him. Interesting bloke. Um, uh, so yeah, household is one of these institutions in which this hierarchical sex is happening. Um, schools and education settings, universities are another. Um, those who attended school um, are usually you know, the wealthier um, contingent of society, although as we get further into Shakespeare's um, into life and, and, and on towards the, this, um, the Carolinian period um, under Charles I, uh, you, you do get more of these sort of middle classes um who get have a lot of money because london sort of boomed in the mm. period um and you get more um more education um, um the, the universities particularly but also you know, the quite public um schools where boarding schools um you have the teacher the master he's sharing sharing bedroom in a lot of cases but certainly sharing accommodation with um, his students, and they are all men. All the teachers are men, and all of the, the students are, are men or boys. Um, and in a lot of cases, they're sharing beds as well, and that gives a lot of opportunity for sexual contact again um, between 
you know, this hierarchy of, of the, 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 and that's the very Greek pedagogical, um, uh, the, the master, the, the teacher and the students, and also for the students to um, have access to each other's bodies. And so um, there's, there's sort of a lot of, of homoerotic conflict happening then. Um, then you've got uh, various institutions like guilds and like patrons, um, and uh, you know there's a lot of scholarship has talked about the sonnets um, with Shakespeare, which I don't I don't want to, to dwell very long on, but um, they're written for the Earl of Southampton, um, and people have interpreted them as as um, homoerotic desire, um, and but that patron. Um, sort of artists or patron, um, political patrons as well, um, was a very common, you've, you've got that clear hierarchy there. Um, and then there was the theatre. And the theatre has um, two very distinct classes of actors in it. Um, you've got your adult actors, um, you know, your Richard Burbage's, your John Sinclair's, uh, your uh, your Augustine Phillips, um, they are adult men. You know, Richard Burbage is is is, is playing um, is is the leading man of the King of Shakespeare's Company, the King's Men. Um, you know, from the from the fifteen nineties through to uh, beyond Shakespeare's death. Uh, no, that's not right. He dies before Shakespeare. Um, anyway, um, you've got these these men who are, you know, a lot of them are part owners of the King's Men. Um, and then you've got the boy actors. Um, and now boy actor is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, boy actors in adult companies like the King's Men wouldn't really have been any younger than 14, maybe 13 at the very youngest, um, because they were apprenticed to one of the men in the company. And apprenticeships generally happened about the age of 14, when you are taken on as an apprentice and you are legally um, indentured to your master, for, usually for a period of seven years. Um, so these boys would join the company probably about the age of 14, and then they leave about 21, 22, when they've had a seven, seven years. Um, so a boy actor could be a 20-year-old man. Um, so when, when we're talking about boys, we don't always mean, and you know, um, so certainly today, you know, a, a, a man having sex with a 15 year old boy is, is very much very legal. And it's, and it, you know, there was a pedophilia then as well, but it, it's the way, the way that um, adolescent sexuality is, is viewed back then is very, very different now. Mm. Um, so I'm gonna call it pederasty. Um, so you have these, these um, these these uh, these two classes of, of actor in in the boy companies uh, in the adult companies, um, and I'm going to talk a, a lot more about that in a, in a moment when we get onto some Shakespeare specifically. Um, but the boys in the in those companies basically played all the women. I think that's 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 some a sort of fairly common knowledge. Um, but your and there's there's a lot of evidence to show that as they got older. They played the better parts. So Juliet is probably being played by a 20-year-old man. Cleopatra definitely is. Um, and you know, your younger boys are playing, 
you know, the, um, the, 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 the boy in Macbeth or, um, you know, these smaller parts in which they could be sort of shepherded around the stage as they're being taught, because they're being taught for the actors. That's what the, the apprenticeship is. Um, <clears throat> and they're playing women's, women's parts. So they're wearing women's clothing and women, uh, cross-dressing women in plays, as, we'll, as I, we'll, we'll talk about when we get to Shakespeare, is a really, really, really common feature of early modern period and is played around a lot with by the uh, authors, by the, by the playwrights, um, to, to, to deliberately play on that, the fact that they're, they're, these boys are dressed as women and it's this sexuality um, undertone. Um, I'll just put a pin in that and come back to it because the other boy actors in the only one period are boys. They are um, the boy companies such as um, the boy company that was in Blackfriars before Shakespeare's company took it, took it over, um, the Children of the Chapel, um, which is uh, which was a royal, a royal company, which is is an operation before Shakespeare's uh, company from from the fifteen eighties, um, and they are all boys. You because they are they are um, choristers essentially. In theory, they are choristers, um, and so they are boys mostly whose, whose voices haven't broken. They're probably the eight, from the age of about eight to about fourteen. Um, and they are very interesting because they're all acting with each other, um, but they are and they're acting the women parts, but they're also acting the men parts, and they're much as much playing men as they are playing women. And I'll get get onto that um, in a bit. But they they use these these boys, and they have very very bawdy um, uh, sort of plot lines and stories and language. Um, and it is generally accepted that these boys were, were objects of sexual attraction for men and women, but, but men in, in, particularly in the case that we're talking about. Um, so two is classes. That, of, uh, hmm? Sorry, is that uh, objects of sexual attraction of the people in the audience? Or? Yes. Yeah. In the audience. Because, you know, they can imagine themselves as a, in, in that hierarchy, older man, younger boy. Um, again, come back to boys. Um, so we've got this hierarchical um, eroticism between men. Um, and then there's the one based on equality, and that's friendship. And friendship in the early modern period means a very different thing. <laughs> um, the most um, perhaps well-known example of friendship that isn't from a play in the early modern period is uh, King James the first and sick um, and his favorite uh, George Villiers the Duke of Buckingham um, and he writes about there's, there's there's letters that still exist between them and and the Duke of uh, and the king writes the, uh, to the Duke of Buckingham he's like um, we're you know we're we're one soul you're as it you're you're like my wife and, and very strong language that if you 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 read them you think you know, if it was written today you'd be like yeah these two are clearly in a very gay relationship yeah um but friendship in the early modern period um it was a very culturally central model um for same-sex 
desire. Uh, and that doesn't mean necessarily that they are um, having sex. But it's this model that is absent from our sort of model, modern relational landscape um, in which sort of heterosexual marriage and the formation of a nuclear family is, um, to, is thought to be the most fulfilling and healthy expression of adult sexuality um, in the early modern period. If you were too attracted to women, they thought you were effeminate. It was, it was, it, it was effeminate to be so attracted to women that you were, um, the, uh, that you were, you were pining after them, or you were um, debasing yourself with your attraction. Only men were equal to of your sort of um, intellectual and social capacity, and it's based in um, the work of Plato again. This, this looking back at classical sources um, and where Plato um, and Socrates will write about how men, um, friendship with men is um, the most perfect ideal that you can aim for um, because the, you, you can find it find an, an, an equal in 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 in, a, in another man um, and in the early modern period there's a, there's somebody there's a guy called michael de montaigne who is translated into into english he's a french writer and he writes about friendship in a in a um in a, a big work called de, uh, de amity um and he talks about stuff like i found my soul or like he is my other me so he, the you, the idea was that you um, you found this person who was so um, like you and, and the same as you and that you 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 could sort of um, you could be one with them um, and in fact the idea of companion marriage that we have now you know that husband and wife should be friends uh, before they get married uh, actually derives from this um, and that's you know the the is 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 one example of how when we think of um, sexuality is it's it's not trans historical. The way that we think of sexuality and and the makeup um, of relationships now is, has not always been the same across time and space. Um, because the idea of marriage before that was the man owned the woman essentially, and in in Shakespeare's time and and developed on it became this more like oh man, husband wife should be should be friends. Um, this idea of companion marriage, and that comes from the, the this desire between men, the the friendship, um, and so within this friendship, there's 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 a spectrum, you know, of of sexuality. Um, you might have two friends who were just friends, just and friends. any any sort of sexuality, any sort of sex between them. You could also have, you know, friends who were having sex every day. Again, we don't know. People don't write this stuff down. Um, and there, there's sort of everything in between there as well. Um, and we, we can see these, these sort of friendships come up in, uh, um, through Shakespeare um, in, uh, oh, two... Uh, I've forgotten what time it is. In 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 um, a great example is actually is, is much of Venice. Um, and in the Merchant of Venice, we have Bassanio, 
and um, and and uh, Antonio, Antonio being the Merchant of Venice, um, and they have the, the way they talk about each other is very passionate. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, that's the idea is behind passion. Um, it, it, this relationship has passion to it. That's that's a key key tenant of um, early bond friendship, and. When we did Merchant of Venice, I played Bassanio, you directed, and Claire Watson played um, Antonio um, as, as a woman. And we changed that, um, that, that, that the, the gender of the character. And I think that made it really clear to an audience, oh, this could be a, you know, she's in love with him. Oh yeah. Antonio is in love with, yeah. When you change the gender, that becomes much more legible to us now. And you didn't have to, I didn't, we didn't change any of the text. Like it's, no. It's text, Ooh, the beyond pronoun changed. The, the text was completely the same. Um, this very passionate friendship reads to us like, a, you know, a, you know, when you're reading it in, in the, the original genders, it reads like, you know, a gay love story or yeah. unrequited gay love. Um, and that's, that's this French, friendship is, in the early modern period is, is, very, is, is very large. It doesn't mean what we, what, the same as it, as it does now. And leaves that opening for sexual contact, sexual um, relationships, um, and the whole sort of the whole of early modern society is pretending that it's not sexual um, <laughs> because being a sodomite, sodomy, bad, bad, bad. Being friends, yeah, great, good, we like that. But the the whole of early modern society is essentially walking a fine line between those two things. And as I, as I sort of said at the beginning, with so, sort of how few convictions there were, essentially, as long as you weren't causing a problem with your sex, most people didn't care. Um, certainly the law didn't. Um, so that's probably, I think, a good time to get on to um, talking about Shakespeare particularly. Um, yeah, let's talk about some Shakespeare plays. Homosexual kind of themes in Shakespeare. Um, I think probably the most obvious is in all those different plays uh, where a girl dresses up as a boy and then falls in love with another boy. Um, the most famous one I can think of is, is As You Like It. And that's kind of loaded with because he falls in love with her, even, you know, dressed as a boy. And there's a lot of kind of, you know, you can play a lot with that, I think. Oh yeah. So As You Like It um, is a fabulous example of this. Um, the name Rosalind picks for herself when she dresses up as a boy is Ganymede. Um, and that couldn't be a more obvious early modern joke to an early modern person. Because Ganymede, um, Again, in classical, classical mythology, um, Ganymede was a very, very beautiful boy. Um, again, boy in the early modern sense, we sort of don't, he's, he was a shepherd, probably somewhere in the age between about 14 and, and, and 25. But um, some, some depictions of him, you know, make him like eight years old or whatever, but he's a boy, he's extremely beautiful. And um, Jupiter, the king of the gods, sees him, thinks he's the most you know, beautiful, boy I've ever seen, I must have him, flies down in the form of an eagle and flies, takes Ganymede and flies him up to heaven um, and makes him his cupbearer over Hebe, who was um, his wife, um, 
whose name I've forgotten. Um, uh, the, the, the Queen of the Gods, her favourite Hebe, was displaced by Ganymede. And so the early modern period sees this as um, erotic preferment of boys over girls and women. Um, and it was a very ubiquitous sign. Um, everybody in the early modern period knew what a Ganymede was. A Ganymede was a um, was slang for homosexual prostitute. Um, Ganymede or catamite or ingle were all slang for boy prostitutes, um, which were common in London. And there were there were all all male brothels in London, um, and so. Picking Ganymede as your uh, as your pretend name is like a big sign that like there is homosexual content here. <laughs> um, yeah, and in, if you look in the text, the original text, the first folio of As You Like It, at the end when Hymen, the um, goddess of marriage and fertility, um, marries uh, Orlando and Rosalind, who who is um, who's been Ganymede, um, it says, join his hand with his. And now that might be a printing error, they, they do happen, but it, it does, um, you know, it suggests that, because it is generally amended in, in modern versions to joins his hand with hers. But it is in the original text, join his hand with his. Um, and of course, this character, Rosalind, is being played by a boy. So we get, in, in As You Like It, you get a boy playing Rosalind, a girl, who's dressed up as a boy. And they have a scene where he pretends to be Rosalind. So we've got a boy dressed as a girl, dressed as a boy, pretending to be a girl. And Shakespeare knows what he's doing when he does that. Um, he's you know, the line. Because also on stage, you know, you've, you know in, in, in a modern version, if you've got a woman playing Rosalind, then um, she looks like a woman, um, generally. Um, if you, if you, but if you're a, a, an early modern, you're watching a boy dressed up as a girl. So when he then dresses up as a boy, he's actually dressing up as himself, or he's, is he taking off a layer? Yeah. You know, and an early modern audience knows this. They know when they go to the theatre that they are seeing all boys and men play these parts. You are watching whatever, even if you're watching the most romantic. Um, Romeo and Juliet ever. It's still two boys telling each other that they love each other. Um, and the playwrights know that, and so do the audiences. Um, so there's a lot of indirect and direct allusions to that um, throughout all sorts of plays. Um, so, as you like it, very obvious one. Um, returning to The Merchant of Venice, um, Bassanio is um, a Italian version of Sebastian. And Sebastian um, is also a, a, um, an early modern gay icon. Saint Sebastian um, is the uh, patron saint of, well now, um, archers, thieves, robbers, homosexuals, um, soldiers, a couple of other things. His story is, um, he was in a, in, a, in a battle and he got shot with a bunch of arrow shafts and he didn't die. 
that was his miracle. That's why he's a saint. So young man getting penetrated by a lot of shafts. It has been, it, uh, it has been, has been taken as gay. It's sort of, certainly as, as, as very homoerotic. Um, and that's very, everybody knows that in the early modern period. Sebastian has homoerotic connotations. So when you have Bassanio, Sebastian, and Antonio telling each other these really passionate um, speeches about how much, you know, they love each other and they'll die for each other. And there's, um, that is, you know, has, has these, these, these queer, these homoerotic connotations and the playwrights in the audience know this. Because um, he's not the only Sebastian in Shakespeare. We think of Sebastian in um, Twelfth Night, another fabulously queer play. Um, Sebastian and Antonio, another Antonio, um, in a, um, in an early 2000s, I think it was the RSC, um, version of Twelfth Night, the Sebastian and Antonio's introduction scene was, um, the two men getting dressed after having been in bed together. Um, because, uh, the, the language they use to each other, um, is, you know, Antonio, is it, will you stay no longer, nor will you not go, that I go with you? Um, and Sebastian responds, it were a bad recompense for your love to lay any of them on you. Um, and then Antonio talks about, um, if you will not murder me for my love, let me be your servant. You know, we've got that servant master thing coming back in. Um, and Sebastian, Sort of says no, essentially. and then Antonio. But after he leaves, Antonio says, um, "The gentleness of all the gods go with thee. Um, I do adore thee so." Um, and again, later in the play, he makes these very passionate, passionate um, uh, sort of speeches about and to to Sebastian. And, and a lot of critics have viewed um, that as a um, very homoerotic um, situation. Of course, that's not the only homoerotic part of Twelfth Night. Um, the plot, plot of Twelfth Night, Viola shipwrecked on a um, on the Illyrian coast, uh, which is sort of a made-up country in um, in the Mediterranean. Um, she dresses up as a boy and falls in love with the lord that she's serving, but also the the lady that he wants to marry also falls in love with her. Um, so we've got so much uh, sort of queer erotic energy going on. You've got, you know, a man who's, who is sort of falling in love with what he thinks is a boy. You've got a woman who is falling in love with what she thinks is a boy, but is actually, actually a, a, a girl. It's, um, you know, there's, there's real queer energy going on. There. And, you know, it's not, it's not like they don't know what they're doing. Um, Orsino talks about, um, Talks about you know, he, he describes um, uh, yeah here it is um, talking to violators um, Diana's lip is not more smooth and rubious than, than yours um, thy small pipe is at, is of as the maiden's organ shrill and sound and all is semblative of a woman's part um, he's obviously saying this about in the play world a woman dressed as a boy but in the theater that is a boy dressed as a woman dressed as a, as a, as a, as a boy um, and so they, they know what they're doing these playwrights and they're playing on the fact that these boys um, 
are boys when there's this this cross cross dressing um, plots and there's a huge amount of plot, cross plus uh, cross dressing plots in the early modern period although they're like 700 extant plays um, 81 of them have an have a um, a cross dressing plot that's like one in ten more than one in ten um, it's a very 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 popular theme um, and as I say, they know what they're doing. Um, the other thing with, with Twelfth Night that's really interesting is that um, Viola's sort of name that she gives is Cesario when she's pretending to be a, a boy. Um, and if you're watching the play on the stage, she isn't called Viola at any point until the final scene. Even in the first scene where she is dressed as a woman, as Viola, she's only ever referred to as Madam or Lady um, until so her brother Sebastian comes and recognises her in the final act of the play. Um, she is referred to only as Madam, Lady or Cesario. Um, so if you're watching the play, you don't actually even know this character's female name until the very end of the play. Um, that's quite a reveal. That's quite a, a tease of Shakespeare's Yeah, part. yeah. And of course, when you're reading it, that's not the case at all, because the, the Viola immediately comes in and is labelled Viola in, in the first folio. Um, and that's, you know, one of the joys of, of Shakespeare written versus Shakespeare performed. It's these sort of subtle little, little things. Um, and Orsino, the, the Lord who falls in love with um, Viola, even as he is proposing to her, calls her Cesario. You know, he's, he says, um, you know, his last line of the play, Cesario, come, for so you shall be while you're a man. Yeah, she's still dressed in, man's in men's clothing. Um, and so he's still going to call her Cesario. And there's a lot of work about that, about how um, that 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 is 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 is, quite, is a very queer relationship, um, and Twelfth Night, of course, is um, subtitle is What You Will, um, and it's it, it it has these sort of various queer energies um, sort of all, all over it. Um, another Sebastian, which I talk about very briefly, is um, in not in Shakespeare play, but is in um, The Roaring Girl, which itself is extremely queer. The Roaring Girl is about, uh, is based on a, on a real, a real person called um, Moll Frith, who was a woman who was notorious in um, early modern London for dressing up as a man and playing on, playing music on stage, um, which was a very, very unwomanly thing to do for an early modern woman. You did not before. It was um, very much frowned on. And she, the character in the play, Moll Cutpurse, um, dresses like a man, is very capable of fighting with a with a weapon as a man, um, and he's in fact mistaken for a man many times. Even though she all the way through says, "I, I am a woman," um, and uses um, she um, use, she she claims the power of of men despite still being a woman. She's a really really interesting character, um, but the Sebastian in it, um, the sort of sub one of the subplots, Mal. Um, helps Sebastian um, set up his marriage with Mary. And to do it, they dress Mary up as a boy. And, uh, let's see if I put it. 
Sebastian says of Mary uh, when she's in this costume, uh, how, uh, I, I kiss such men to choose. Methinks a woman's lip tastes as well in a doublet. Uh, methinks every kiss she gives me now in this strange form is worth a pair of two. Um, essentially, think I'm even more attracted to her dressed as a boy than I was when she's dressed as a girl. Um, and that's you know another Sebastian. We, Sebastian, for an early modern person, is always saying this is you know look out for these homoerotic um, happenings. I'm going to have to rewatch the Little Mermaid now because I don't. Um, but it's not only Sebastian's. There's also, you know, there's a lot of um, of, of queer content going on in early modern um, London uh, and in the theatre. The Malcontent, which is a, a play um, by John Marston, performed by the Kingsmen, but first by a boy company. Um, and the actual content of it isn't particularly queer. There's, there's bits, but the the introduction, which is when it's done by the Kingsmen. Um, essentially in the introduction, the, the king's men, so the characters of the king's men, and they are the, men, the king's men playing themselves, so playing a version of themselves, come onto stage and have a banter. And at one point, there's, there's two, two of the company called Sinclo and Sly. Um, Sly says to Sinclo, oh cousin, which means friend, come, you shall sit between my legs here, Sinclo. No, indeed cousin, the audience then will take me for a vile de gamba and think you play upon me. Vardagamber is a sort of cello-like instrument. And then Sly responds, nay, rather that I work upon you, cuz. Um, which basically means use you sexually. Um, that is a very, for an early audience, that is a very clear gay joke right there. Um, and that clearly didn't put them off because that's in the introduction. They're gonna sit through the rest of the play. So the, the King's Men there, because they had, this, they had this introduction added after they stole this play from the boys. Um, so they, they clearly knew that by putting this in, they weren't going to put off people from watching it. And they're playing on their own reputation as, you know, um, as actors who have this, this, this reputation as, as for homoeroticism. Um, and early modern plays absolutely cover this. There's, there's a, you know, there's, there's an academic book on Shakespeare, which goes through every single Shakespeare play and writes an essay on the queer elements of it. You know, there is, there is so much to find. I can't, um, I can do a couple, couple more just to pick out um, to, to, to give, give some more examples. Edward II is a play by uh, Christopher Marlowe. Um, he's often, this play particularly is often seen as like one of the, the most, one of the closest to a, a modern gay identity that you might find in early modern plays. It, it's not really, but um, in it, the king, Edward II, who is, who is a historical king, very, he was very unpopular, particularly unpopular, in the early modern period. Um, he has a courtier called Gaveston um, and Gaveston is very very disliked by the other lords because he's very he, he comes from poor a poor background and Edward because for, because he is his favorite elevates him to lordship and, 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 and very close um, very, very close uh, sort of friendship. Um, but it's very erotic. You know, in the, in the very first scene, we meet Gaveston and he describes going, he, um, going to see 
um, uh, see Edward and calls himself Leander and, high, and, um, and the king uh, hero. Hero and Leander is a Christopher Marlowe um, poem in which Leander is essentially um, sexually assaulted by Neptune. So it has that in itself has, has queer connotations. It's then being deployed to describe this relationship, which has uh, very queer connotations. And then he talks about how he's going to put on a put on a masquerade for him with boys dressed as nymphs. Um, and he's going to, you know, the eye goes down to places that men like to see, essentially down to the genitals. Um, and then it, it certainly when it when it's in, um, interpreted in modern um, modern plays that most recently done at the Globe a couple of years ago, um, it you know the people in modern tend to make it very explicit. You know, there's lots of kissing and making out, and um, uh, and then at the end of the play, Edward is killed, um, and he is killed by the insertion of a hot rod up in, into his into his anus. Um, and a lot of people have read that in read that as a as a um, as, as damning of sodomy because it's it's you know it's replicating anal sex. Um, so Edward II, very very um, key queer play. But again, Marlowe again in uh, Dido, um, his his play. The first scene it opens with Jupiter and Ganymede. Ganymede is sitting on Jupiter's knee um, and basically says, "I'll have sex with you if." you give me presents um, in as many words. Um, very, very obviously queer. Um, and then we ju there's just endless amounts of these, um, these, these uh, oh, cross-dressing plays. To me, um, is Julius Caesar, the relationship between Brutus and Cassius seems kind of, when you're talking about what you were talking about earlier, about kind of that platonic you get more out of a relationship with a man than you do with a woman we see way more of brutus and cassius and their language is a lot more loving than the one scene we get between brutus and his wife portia it's absolutely absolutely you know brutus and cassius are you know equals they are social equals and intellectual equals and so that is in early modern times a much more fulfilling relationship than either of their relationships with their wives um because their relationship with their wives are for procreating and passing on inheritance um there is that yeah that's a very important um relationship to 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 them the, 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 between the two of them um so, so slight side note i just thought um there's a there's a company of boys in today um called edward edwards boys um they are part of um they're they're, they're run by the deputy teacher of uh, Shakespeare's school in Stratford-upon-Avon and essentially what they do is they put on these boy plays um, now um, and they're really really good and they usually tour to a few places including they always, always do a stop in London I strongly recommend people go and see them if they can because these boys are really really good they're not this isn't like normal children's theatre where it's a bit shit they are really really good um, and it, it's and they and these boys are dressing up as girls you know, they are they are doing it as sort of close to the early ones as they can, and it's really enlightening seeing these plays done the way they would have been done. Um, and there's a lot. Of, they, there's there's a particular there's a researcher, um, Harry McCarthy, who's done a lot of work with them um, about boy boy plays and these um, these boy companies. Um, 
but we do, and that's sort of talking about modern stuff um, is very interesting in these interpretations of Shakespeare plays. And it's, and it's one of the reasons this sort of stuff is, is important to talk about and think about is because for centuries, um, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, um, Shakespeare was the domain of, you know, academics who are, um, who are heterosexual for the most part. As, as I said, as you know, the example of my book, 1950, 1953, Shakespeare has no homosexual content. What are you talking about? Um, Which is wrong. Yeah, and the, the work that is being done is uncovering um, a lot of this and, and, we're, and finding that, that sexuality is, is different to how we have experienced it now. Um, and so it's important for that. And it's also important for people to see representations of themselves on stage. You know, for me, Baz Luhrmann's Roman Juliet, the character that stands out the most is the fabulously gay Mercutio. Um, not, not the, you know, the, the, the lovers in the, in, in, in the center of it. Um, and another great sort of twist on, on, on the trope, um, Amelia at the Glo it was done at the Globe, which is a new play. Um, I forgot who wrote it, um, but it was done at the Globe and then taken to the Vaudeville Theatre a couple of years ago. Um, it was all women playing. Uh, it was a new play, um, and the way they got around the fact that the women were playing men, and to not make it funny because it was completely taken seriously, it was really really good. Um, is the first like ten minutes is just all female characters. And then all of the men come up at once and they, you know, they've got like prosthetic moustaches and beards and, and they're acting like man, they, stereotypically manly at, at first. Um, and they do like a dance that's like really like macho manly and that's funny and they make you laugh. And then you'd completely take it seriously as, um, as, as these, these, these women dressed, uh, dressed as men in the same way that the, the, the boys do in Edward's boys, you know, it could, the first time, you know, this 14 year old boy comes out and his voice is broken, sort of heartbreaking, playing, um, you know, one of the, the, the tragic heroine. It's funny for a moment. And then you completely forget. And that was, that's what would have happened for an early modern person going to the theatre and seeing these boys playing girls. But it's still always there at the back of your mind. And that's these are these queer possibilities that are always happening with Shakespeare plays and, and other early modern plays. Um, and that's, that's really important to, to uncover and, and think about now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Um, I think that kind of segues quite nicely. Your, your dissertation was on, sort of uh, trans, the trans experience in early modern drama. So why don't you give us a bit of that? Yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's a fascinating topic. So as I mentioned earlier, in these, today, the LGBT umbrella is, is brought together under political um, uh, sort of fraternity um, to, to, to fight for, for political power for, for everybody. Um, but they are they are separate you know sexuality and sexuality for, for sort of homosexual gay, you know, gay lesbian bisexual and then gender and they are they are there is overlap but they are different things um today they're not quite so different in the early modern period 
gender is much less fixed than we than we have than, than, than we, we have been led to believe over the last you know 100 150 years and now that is in the last sort of couple of decades is is, is being questioned and, and um there's a, a huge amount of fabulous work being done on on, on um trans studies um and and gender um but in the early one period um gender was much less was not seen as particularly fixed and there was a huge anxiety around masculinity particularly because men were absolutely terrified of having to be women or, or being seen as womanly or because um women have in such a low place in society um and the early modern view is the sort of that gender itself was thought to be changeable um, and as much as a matter of clothing and, and prosthetics like beards or or cod pieces as it was of, of anatomical difference um, and what i mean by that is um, there were laws around what people could wear sumptuary laws um, and actors got around that but there's um Henslow, Philip Henslow, who's the owner of one of the theatres of London, he has these diaries, um, which which a huge amount, a huge amount of work done on them. Um, and in it, there is a, there's a bit where he he essentially writes that he will fine anyone who leaves the theatre in their king outfit because it's against the law. Um, you know, people couldn't wear purple <laughs> because purple was the royal colour, um, and they did get around it on stage. Um, but these, these sumptuary laws um, presumed that people could be changed by what they wore. And that, that could be a, a, you know, a lower class person masquerading as a, a noble or, 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 or a king. But it also worked for gender as well. Um, and there was a lot of anxiety around the theatre that people wearing women's clothes would um, either become women themselves or um, would force would cause men to desire men because they were wearing women's hair. Um, and and I, I, I mentioned this this earlier with the, the boy companies. Of course, these boys are playing both women and men, and these are the young boys. You know, these are eight to fourteen, and an eight-year-old does not look like a man any more than he looks like a woman. So he is as much wearing a false beard to pretend to be a man as he might wear false breasts to pretend to be a woman. Um, and in fact, there, there's, there's lots of different ideas going on about the body um, in the period. And one particular one that was quite widely held and was very concerning was that um, women were essentially incomplete men. And that because the universe was, was moving towards perfection and men were closer to perfection than women, um, women could spontaneously turn into men. And that's because they, they thought of the, the, this particular model was the one sex model that the um, women's internal organs, you know, the ovaries, um, the vagina, were just men's <laughs> organs inside them. So that at any point they could fall out and become a penis and, and testicles. Um, the, the testicles that, that was a genuinely held belief by, by, by some people. Um, and terrifying, if you're a man, that, that the opposite could happen. Um, there's no cases 
people uh, absolutely do not consider that this could happen in the early one period that, that men could become women but they do there's there's like there's a few cases and they're quite widely studied in medical texts of the time of women becoming men um and you know if we look at the back back in, back at them these days they usually tend to be um examples of intersex people um or um women with with enlarged clitoris clitorises things like that um but yeah there was this idea that that, that women could become it and that, that so gender and even sex was not fixed for the early modern um the early modern society um and that caused a great deal of concern and a lot of that concern is reflected in place um and we see that with a lot of the the, the cross-dressing plots and now my um dissertation looked at two particular plays because uh, in these 81 or so cross-dressing plots there's only two that aren't just putting clothes on they are magical transformations in both cases it is a um, a greek god magically transforms a girl character into a boy character um the first one is called galatea um, and is slightly better known um, in which there's these two two girls who are both beautiful virgins their fathers send them away into the forest dressed as boys to escape them being eaten by a monster who has to they have to basically the most beautiful girl in the in the village has to be sacrificed to this monster every seven years so these fathers send these two girls into the forest dressed as boys they both come across each other think oh he this this boy is beautiful i'm a girl so i can marry him that's fine and i'm in love with him um and then at the end they both find out they're girls and they're like oh no now we can't get married um and there's a lot there's a lot of interest there's lots of interesting things about that around lesbian desire and um desire between women um and then at the end of the play the goddess venus comes down and says um you know what these guys really love each other i'll turn one of them into a boy so they can get married um and that is deeply anxiety provoking for some of the characters the girls are really happy and um either, they're both they're, they're, they they don't they don't care what their gender or their, what their body looks like. They, they can keep their gender identity and they, they get to be in love with each other. Um, so a happy ending for them. Yeah, that's the most important thing for them. But they're like, the father is like, oh God, if I've now got a son rather than a daughter, um, what's going to happen to my, my son that I already, I already got? Because he will now be disinherited because everything was inherited by the first son. Um, so these sort of transformation changes you know magical in this case but thought to be possible through um clothing and, and other things uh has economic consequences as well as you know moral religious social consequences and that's very very anxiety provoking for early modern society um at the end of the play you don't find out actually which one gets um, transformed into a boy and it's sort of left open which is super interesting um because you've got this this sort of such queer energy um circulating there in the in the play um the main focus of of, of my my study um was another play called the maid's metamorphosis um and in this where you have a character this character called Euromine, um and she is is um in love with the prince she's a woman in love with the prince Ascanio and um, because she's of a lower class the prince's father 
it doesn't want this to happen and orders a plot to kill her on the pretense of banishing her from the kingdom. She ends up in a forest, um, as these things often do, um, and the plan is der derailed and she ends up being pursu pursued by these two, a shepherd and a, and a woodcutter who are both in, in love with her. Um, and then the Greek god Apollo. Um, there's a theme here with Greek gods. Um, and so in order to prevent herself being sexually assaulted by um, Apollo, um, she challenges him to, to prove that he is a god and change me straight from shape of maid to man. Um, and this happens and, and Apollo loses interest, which is interesting because he's, he is historically, uh, or well, mythologically, is, is, doesn't care about the gender of his partner. But in this play, he does. Um, and then she has to convince that the, the, these two suitors, that she is the set, she's her twin, her, her own twin brother. Um, and then she comes across her prince, Ascanio, um, and reveals what's happened. And then all the characters come together and petition Apollo to reverse it, and he does. Um, but what's really, really interesting about this play is that at no point does she stop seeing herself um, as a woman, as gender identity. Her body may change, but her gender identity is very clear. She carries on, um, she calls herself a maid or a woman um, all the way through, even when she's having, she's revealing this, um, what's happened to her, her lover. Um, and so my work sort of goes into, into that and, and, um, uh, and, and, and this idea of uh, this gen very stable gender identity, even when the body is unstable. Um, which is which is what early modern people thought, you know, um, male and female bodies weren't understood to be these separate, discrete entities that were fundamentally different. They 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 were viewed along a continuum, and here she's just been her body's being moved upon the continuum, but her her identity her, as as woman is is stable and fixed, which is really interesting when we think of it from a, a it, through the lens of trans studies, um, because um, you know, it, it, it's um, this idea of, of, of um, bodies and gender identity not matching um, or, 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 um, uh, or, or being uh, just dysphoric um, becomes, um, you know, we see this reflected in, in this play from, from 400, 500 years ago. Um, and now this play isn't, isn't a Shakespeare play, I should, I should add that, it's, it's an unknown author. Um, and again, it's it's a boy play. So the fact that this this transformation, that you know, this boy dressed as a girl is magically transformed into a boy. We see this, um, you know, how does that happen on stage? Mm. Essentially, he just says the words, "You are now a man," and we, as the audience, have to see this boy dressed as a girl. Just we, you know, we don't see what's happening underneath the body because nothing can happen. We have you know, they had some special effects, but not that. Um, You'd be hard pressed to do that now. Um, and you know what? Excuse me, the, the the line Apollo's line when he, when this, this transformation happens. I grant thy wish, thou art become a man, and that's speaking in this trans speaking this transformation. And but actually, nothing happens. Um, and so, whilst her her body might not in the in the play world might not match her gender identity, she does identify. You know, she keeps this stable. Um, identity the whole time um, and in fact her, she that she then because everybody else views her as as a man now despite that she, she has this belief that she's 
Um, she, she very, very strongly feels that she's a woman. Um, she, she gains access to political and economic um, power that she didn't have access to before. Um, and in fact, she, 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 she is quite happy to, to with, with her new, she, she, she doesn't necessarily want to be changed back in, into a girl. She'd say, yeah, I, I know that I'm a woman. I might, my body might not might have changed, but that, that doesn't matter to me. Um, and then she meets her lover. And the only reason she's like, I want to be changed back, that's, that's spoke, said in the text is because I, now that we, now we can't get married. And she, they want, and before, but before that, sort of even the possibility of her being changed back come, comes up. She's talking to um, her lover and is saying, okay, well, we can't be married anymore, but we can be friends. Um, and then we come back to this idea of, of friendship um, and what that means. Um, being more enriching. Essentially, you've got these two boys dressed as a boy and a boy, <laughs> and um, one of whom in the play world it was a was it was was a girl um and they they're talking about french and all you know all of these themes that i've talked about today entwine here in this 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 sort of this play in this scene um because the, you know the, the scene has been interpreted interpreted um as 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 um sex between sex between men homoerotic um and then as i've as i've argued um this, this trans reading, um, in which she, she does re, uh, maintain this stable gender identity. Um, and there's a lot of fabulous work being done um, on, on uh, uh, trans early modern. Um, my supervisor, Emma Smith, um, is, is doing a trans reading of Twelfth Night um, in the latest edition of the Arden. They're, they're public, I don't know if they're published yet. Um, the, the Arden Shakespeare series um, is being prepared at the moment. And she's doing Twelfth Night, um, and it's, has got some really fascinating stuff um, coming out with, with that. Um, yeah, I think that sort of wraps up most of of what I want to say today, really. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. I, I've been in sat here in raptured silence for a lot of this because I, I I've been so interested. It's such an interesting topic, and so far not far removed but kind of it's not necessarily something that everyone brings when they come to watch a Shakespeare play it's certainly not anymore um, and it's definitely given me a lot of ideas of sort of interpretations and things that you can bring in that Shakespeare himself would have you know considered de rigueur like it is just it's just a that I the idea the idea of the early modern experience I, I suppose it's something that you don't necessarily always think about even though really it's kind of obvious um but no thank you very much phil that was that was absolutely fascinating and i really hope that uh, the people who are listening and watching at home have enjoyed it um and we hope to see you all again soon on the next edition exit pursued by a bard is a canterbury shakespeare festival podcast you can find out more about the festival at www.canterburyshakespeare.co.uk Stay up to date with what we're doing by liking us on Facebook or following us on Instagram at Canterbury Shakespeare. If you like what you see and want to support us in bringing great outdoor theatre to Kent, you can donate to the festival through our GoFundMe page. More information can be found on our website.
thou tottering, tickle-brained vassal. 